spooky, huh? You know, I actually chose this opening in honor of today's guest. Apparently, this is one of their least favorite places in the world. You'll find out why later in the episode. Speaking of which, this is the last one for the month of October, and with only a few days to go before Halloween, we felt like there was only one emotion we could tackle. It's perfect, really. Everyone experiences it, but in their own way. It brings people together and makes them run away screaming. It's something that we'll gladly pay money to engage with, but we're also forced sometimes to confront in our everyday lives. It's gross, it's gory, it's hilarious, it's timeless, it's shocking, it's got a lot going on. Well, world, what is up? Welcome to the Feelings Lab. I'm your host, Matt Forte, and on today's episode, we're going to talk about horror. I try to start each one of these with a personal anecdote or a memory, something to make a tangible connection to the day's topic before we dive into the nuanced nooks and crannies. And in the lead up to this one, I was surprised not by the amount of memories I was able to recall and kind of swim around in, but more so by the variety amongst them. I had like funny memories, inconsequential ones, painful ones, distant, fuzzy memories, visceral, real as the day they happened moments as well. I mean, you name it, it was up there. And one of my earliest actually trick or treating memories was uh, the absolute terror I felt as the world's most most screen-accurate Michael Myers menacingly followed my dad and I for several blocks. It was 1991, and I remember this because I was a Terminator, and I'll never forget the feeling as I became profoundly aware of how useless my toy gun was, and I wasn't going to get to enjoy any of my candy. Uh, Evidently, it was like a neighbor or something. He was trying to say hi to my dad. I didn't know that at the time, but that doesn't change anything. The check was already cashed. I was terrified. Now that's up here forever. And so I think of that moment coupled with the countless experiences in packed movie theaters gasping in unison with the crowd, uh, late night sleepovers chanting Bloody Mary and Candyman into darkened suburban bathroom mirrors. And on the flip side of that coin, literally any moment from the last 18 months worth of news uh, or in a more personal note, standing in front of my grandmother's house, my childhood home and and watching it give way to a a terrible fire. All of that, all of those somehow reside under the same umbrella. Uh, And even more fascinating still is all of that is just my personal experience. You know, different people, different cultures all have their own unique relationship with horror. Some people rejoice in it. Uh, Today, I want to open Pandora's box. I want to read from the Forbidden Scrolls and traverse every inch of this proverbial haunted mansion. I want to explore it all. Uh, A scary proposition, I know. Uh, They say it's dangerous to go alone, but thankfully I don't have to, because I'm dragging my three friends and co-hosts along with me, as well as one very special guest. Uh, I say it every week, I mean it every time. There is no show without Dr. Alan Cowan, Daniel Credit Cobb, and Dr. Dacker Keltner. And good news, everyone, they're all here. Uh, And as for that guest... He's a supremely talented actor, comedian, writer, producer, and musician. Uh, You've seen him on Portlandia, Saturday Night Live, Documentary Now, and literally dozens of other things I know you love. Uh, He's the co-creator, writer, and executive producer and co-star of the fantastic HBO series Los Spookies, self-proclaimed lover of not only the horror genre, but of people who love horror. Please welcome to the show the great Fred Armisen is here. Fred, my goodness, thank you so much for doing this. How are you, sir? I'm well, and thank you so much for such a nice introduction. Oh, well, thank you for doing all those really cool things for me to say. Uh, <laughs> it's super great to have you. We're thrilled. Uh, Danielle, Dacker, Alan, of course, how are the three smartest people I know doing today? <laughs> so great. Doing good. And I, and I wonder if this secretly should be a moment where we 
have Fred be your horror therapist for everything you just talked about in the intro. <laughs> I gave I gave him a lot to unpack. Let's ease him into the group chat. Let's. <laughs> uh, but I do I I do I am going to throw to Fred in a second. I do want to. But before we like dive dive in, uh, in my head and Dacker, keep me honest here. Under my umbrella, there are two slightly smaller umbrellas. Uh, one like the art of horror and and manufactured horror that we create, and be it TV, films, theme parks, etc. And then over here under this umbrella, there's like the naturally occurring events and and just existing in general etc. And so I want to start more on the cultural umbrella side and we'll make our way over to the other one. But even before that, am I crazy for breaking things up that way? Is that a delineation that exists on the scientific side as well? Or is that just in my weird little brain? Well, I think the delineation is one of the most profound delineations in human culture, which is evolution gave us all these emotions that help us connect to people. Uh, and connect to the environment, emotions like awe and embarrassment and love and desire. And then culture is this magical, powerful force, a couple hundred thousand years old. And it's taking the structure and form of these emotions. And philosophers like Suzanne Langer have written about this and then transforming them into aesthetic experiences. Right. So sounds of uh, the sounds of emotion become music. And Alan's done work on that. The images of our emotional landscape in real life become what we paint, you know, Goya painting horrific images. And that's the dynamic interplay between who we are in our evolutionary history and then how we create things. And what I love is, is art gives us this moment of understanding, right? Mm -hmm. Of like terror and horror and beauty and love and injustice and so forth. So it's, you're wise to delineate the aesthetic from the the quote real uh, or everyday as a starting point. Oh, you're very kind to say I'm wise. Thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> that's all I took out of all of that. That's um, <laughs> I, I well, I do. That's that's actually great. I want to jump in. So, Fred, I said I was going to throw to you first. Uh, before we get deep in the weeds, I want to go kind of back in time with you for a second. I think it was around when Losa Spooky season one came out. I had read something where you mentioned when you were younger, you lived in Brazil as a kid, a little kid, and, and the soap operas and and death being a big deal, and and remarking on the celebration of it and all. And I'm curious if that was your earliest exposure to horror full stop, or if that was the first time you'd seen it kind of recontextualized in a more positive and, and celebrated way like that. Um, both. So a little bit before that, as a kid, I would see, I mean, it was probably on TV, some of the, um, the Dracula movies from England, the Hammer movies. Mm. Um, so something in that I already spoke to me. There was something about those that type of vampire because at this point it was color yeah but it was like faded color <laughs> and something about it really spoke to me and it was it didn't feel scary to me it's something that i just wanted to i love the aesthetic i wanted to be a part of it there's something to me even with the fangs and everything that um was somehow also kind of a celebration just like those soap operas in brazil where uh because e even though those were very, there was like a morbidity to the, those mm. soap operas, it was still, I don't know, Brazil, like there's a lot of celebration and ceremony. So even in that, it never felt like horrifying. And by the way, those two umbrellas you were talking about, uh, it, I was just thinking that, oh, I have a question. Go. And that is that, it, does the word horror, has that already does that already, the word itself, lean into that, the umbrella of entertainment, 
um, and like the fun part of it. Only in that, like, I, I don't think I ever hear anyone talk about real life events as horrible or horrifying. I usually hear terror more mm. with that. But I'm, I'm just asking. That's I just feel question. like the word horror is kind of like, is already becoming kind of a, a sort of lovable word. Absolutely. I would love to get smart people's thoughts on that. Let's go. Yeah. I mean, this is a podcast about emotion. And so we want to talk about horror as an emotion here. And there's that whole space of empathic pain, disgust, horror, sort of gradient from horror to fear, fear to anxiety. Um, and then there's movies about, you know, the horror emotion. I think there's movies that are more centered on the fear and anxiety. And I think those are really called thrillers. Um, and the way we kind of want to situate horror in sort of the narrative of the human experiences, when you're running away from the big tiger, that's fear. When the tiger eats your friend, that's horror. I think, <laughs> I think it has something to do with our knowledge of our mortality, of all of the contemplation that goes on, of our kind of higher level awareness of what's happening there. And uh, the way that it invokes um, almost a spiritual element. You know, it's invoked culturally in a kind of a spiritual way of magic and horror in the afterlife and thinking about what happens to souls after you die. And um, the, the strangeness of ceasing to exist is, is sort of what's being complicated or uh, contemplated often. So I think that's the distinction we can make between the emotion of horror and fear. One of the things I was really curious about, Alan, uh, specifically is as you're mapping out human emotion, right? And you guys are creating these super detailed, nuanced maps. It, I was curious, thinking like, okay, well... Uh, in Brazil, they celebrate horror. And I know yeah. that like uh, in Chinese culture, they don't even have a haunted mansion in their Disneyland because like they're, they, they have a totally different relationship with ghosts. So like, how do you as a scientist who's trying to map the universal human experience account for those different perceptions and ways people uh, sort of activate or, or don't activate when, when exposed to horror? How do you guys kind of figure out what works for humans? Yeah, I mean, so there's two questions there. One is, uh, do people experience horror? And the other is, do we like it? <laughs> I think there's some <laughs> cultures where, for some reason, uh, we like it. And, and in East Asian cultures, we generally, people generally don't like high arousal emotions as much, generally. Um, although there is uh, a discussion of the afterlife and spirits and all of that that people sort of revel in. Um, especially, for example, Japan and Shintoism, all kinds of um, cultures in, East, in East Asia. But... Um, yeah, generally speaking, um, I would say we talk about uh, the expressions of the emotions that you feel and experience that experiences that evoke them. People generally feel report feeling horror as distinct from fear when they see mutilated bodies, um, when they see uh, ghosts, when they see monsters, and that's across cultures. And the expression is a little bit different. Um, there's for fear an expression that's sort of a quick. It's, it's almost a gasp. There's a gasp that's like negative surprise. Like, and then there's for fear, it's kind of like, ah, there's kind of an outward. <laughs> uh, but then for horror, it's, I'm not going to do it, but it's like the prolonged blood curdling scream oh. that you wouldn't do if you were on the run from a tiger because, you know, you wouldn't want to tire yourself out. Um, and I think people recognize that across cultures as being horror. Uh, until you said blood curdling scream, I was going to do that annoying thing where I was going to go do yeah. it, but then no. <laughs> you made you made the right call. The right decision. I'm curious, so, for, so that's sure. the map. If you look at it, kind of in terms of what's going on with 
the actual emotions themselves. But Fred, I'm I'm so curious for you. There, of course, is a creative map to horror too. The kind of rules or recipes for horror. And when I think of like the design of horror, I'm like, okay, in The Shining, you learn that things in twins, that like the twins, two of something is bad, you know, or like Scatman Crothers. It's like, there's always the one who knows or like in Los Spookies, it's like Andres has this hidden story that like is revealed over time. And even like two of my favorite horror films are like psychological thrillers. It's like the omen where you become afraid of Rottweilers or Rosemary's baby, where it's like anything yellow is evil. And so I'm so curious, like your experience as a creative person playing with these spaces of our feelings, like how, how does that work for you? Is there kind of a, a recipe there? It's like, um, the first thing is that it's, it it seems like a universal language, Mm. like all the things you described also brought like smiles to all our faces or it's like, so it's, it it has a weird mix with comedy. Yeah. Even though in the movie theater, especially with the omen, (laughs) like we would be, we would be scared. It really does bring happiness to whatever, most of us. And I like it as shorthand. I do like uh, all some of that imagery, all of that stuff that makes it work for audiences everywhere. So it's almost like if it was music, it's like a a distorted power chord, you know, like a, that one big chord that you just know everyone loves. Like, Hey, this is, it's, it's loud, but we all love this. And and, uh, that's kind of like where that comes from. It's like, it's so, uh, it really is like unifying. Yeah, uh, absolutely. When you you say the word unifying, and I think about um, there's also too just like the difference between the experience of watching The Omen in a theater with a with a group of people versus watching at home alone, and it's two completely different experiences for me at least. I, I uh, there's something about that energy, and that comes up in almost every episode of this uh, yeah. podcast. That uh, every emotion I'm finding there is some undercurrent of evolutionarily speaking, it exists to bring us together in some way, and so I'm I'm very very much wondering. How does that work with horror? Is this from the very beginning? Has it been uh, I'm in danger and other people come to me because I'm in like, how, what are the roots? Take me back, Decker, to the very beginning. How, why do we do this? Why do we scare ourselves? Well, you know, and, and it, it makes me think about an experience my brother and I had in a wax museum in, in Madrid, Spain, when we were 15 and 16. We love going to wax museums, you know, because they're kind of weird and freaky. <laughs> yeah. And we, and we, and we go Bubble. in. And it's all torture. It's like wax representations of beheadings and drawing and quartering. And it was just horrifying. But if you, to Fred's point, like if you watch the Spaniards in there, they were leaning into each other. Their arms are around each other. They're kissing each other. They're cheek to cheek. And they're like, ah, you know, and, and that's the idea of, of artistic representations of any emotion as they allow us to be together, what happens scientifically is our brains start to synchronize. We lean in, we're closer to people and and it gives us a chance to contemplate. Right. And for me to Fred's earlier point about where's there still horror out in the world that's real. And maybe Fred's observation that horror now means enjoying movies is a good thing, ironically, but we're, for me, it was Abu Ghraib, right? It was seeing those photos. 
and I got to interview this artist, Susan Kreil, who did these incredible drawings of Abu Ghraib. And, and it was this moment of reflecting on what we do to each other, what we can do to each other's bodies uh, as both real art, real experience in art. So it, it, I think the representation of horror is one of the first moments of art in our evolutionary history is just to figure out like, how do we stop tearing up each other's bodies? Mm. Um, yeah. Cause I was, is that what you're yeah. after Fred in your art? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Kind of, I mean, yes, I, I, I do. There is like that, that positive way of looking at it I, on a smaller scale. I think that if something happens in public, right? If you're alone, yeah. say you're on a train or something and something shocking happens, it doesn't have to be horrible, but something shocking, the way that, you know how like we all kind of look at each other, it's like <laughs> kind of bonding. Yeah. If something crazy happens, it's the, people sort of look at each other like uh, the look being, whoa, or, you know, can you believe this is happening? <laughs> it's, there's something in there that I think, so even with the example you gave, there is something to like checking in with someone at work and being like, can you believe mm. this? It, it is a little bit of uh, like, it separates you from that a little bit. I think of that contagion. Yeah. There, and oh, oh go. sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, go, just, go I think it. what's so interesting about that contagion moment too. And even like, Fred, I'd never thought yeah. of it as like joy, the joy that comes from horror. It's like, there is this kind of real yeah. like uplifting. And I think the belonging thing, one of the things I remember the most that of course is like a cultural meme, but is like everybody in the theater being like, don't go in there, you know? And, and it's like, yeah. one of the, like just reflecting back on this, I was like, what movies have really scared the shit out of me? And I remember living in New York the summer that Blair Witch came out, going to the theater. And because that was like one of the first times where they like really tricked us with the viral thing, like we all thought it was real until the actors started showing up on TV promoting the film. And then we were like, wait, I thought you were dead. And what was funny was seeing it being so freaked out, everyone in the theater screaming, like it's a New York audience. So it was like, rah! and then I have never been so happy to exit into Times Square. I was like, we all made it. It's okay. And all these humans are welcome and the lights are welcome. We're not in the woods anymore. And I just, I love that as a high relief moment of a bizarre way to belong. It's like equally as beautiful as any other way. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> And I, I love also the highlighting of that, the exit from yeah. the theater. That's the thing. That's the big difference for me, not just the social aspect, but when I'm in a theater watching something scary, I'm safe. I'm surrounded yeah. by a hundred people in the old world. Mm. I'm safe, surrounded <laughs> by a hundred people. And um, that, that's, that in itself is not terrifying. That's comforting. We're all seeing this. And when it's done, I get to leave through that door. But when mm -hmm. I watch it at home and then it's like, I sit there with my wife and I'm like, I gotta go to the bathroom. You go first or something like, like none of us want to move. We, we, we don't feel safe in our own house at that point. Cause we just, we can't leave this thing. Because and, the call uh, is it's just coming a fascinating from inside way that, the house, dude. Exactly. That's why <laughs> that's what it is. That's why we don't have landlines anymore. That's why. Uh, but uh, yeah, I just, it's such an interesting sort of, uh, you know, yin and yang, just the same exact film, but two completely different experiences that you can have. Yeah. Um, is there something to be said for uh, just like from an evolutionary advantage of sort of de desensitizing ourselves through art so that we're better prepared to outrun said lion when it starts chasing us? Is, is that, is there any science that points towards that? Well, I think there's this general story about play behavior where, you know, from a young age, you literally fight each other. And then at a certain point you laugh 
and you know that you're not serious. You're not trying to kill each other. And that's training for fighting. That's training <laughs> practice for actual conflict. And horror is probably pretty similar. There's yeah. training for how you respond in a situation where everybody is in danger. And children like to tell each other stories. Um, I think probably across cultures, and in any case, across cultures, there's fairy tales that are horrifying that are told to children. <laughs> um, they get them ready kind of to, for this experience of what do you do when something is actually a, a real danger. You know, I actually read this article and I and I looked it up before this because I knew we were talking about this, but like nerd alert, I was super excited because I remember there was this article that said the people who watch for, uh, horror films were more resilient. Like there was a scientific study done. It was published in a journal. Mm -hmm. And what was great is it was like this fully legitimate professional academic thing, scientists. And what was lovely is it was at a University of Chicago, this guy named Colton Scrivener. But what he basically said is he was like, if you watch specifically the genres of alien invasion, zombie or apocalyptic films, <laughs> you, these are like, they call them prepper films. And they're basically like, they prepare you to be able to cope with almost like exposure therapy style to cope with the mm -hmm. stuff that's going down in our lives. And so they said that during COVID horror fans are more resilient. And I was like, Oh my God. So Fred, wow. that, that therapy line, I didn't realize it, but it's accurate. <laughs> cool. The, the, um, the example of Blair, Witch, I would say is definitely real life preparation in that. <laughs> I, I'm not a fan of of being out in nature. Sometimes nature's scary to me. So that forest, that forest that they were in, that they were lost there, that yeah. was really effective because it was that videotape quality, and that kind of worked on me. Of like, if I was out at dusk in a forest that I didn't know, so in real life, I do. Who knows how much it really affected me? But I do kind of think like, let me be careful. To not be lost in the forest, <laughs> just I'll, I'll turn down any invitations, you know, like, <laughs> for that. We're going to invite you to the camp out. <laughs> well, with you guys, I would. That's different. I just love the idea. You guys know my standing rule. Nope, it's at five thirty, and it's in the middle of the forest. I'm not going. That is on the borderline of dusk. Um, at the risk of sounding like your therapist, Fred, does, does that, do you know the origins of that fear? Do you know why forests are, are scary for you? Or like, it's funny when you find someone who like embraces, loves horror, doesn't find it unnerving. And then you find what they do find unnerving. And in this case, I, I, I wish I knew, um, yeah. I'm, ter I'm terrified of heights. Me too. Yeah. And, um, and I think with forests is I, I just don't feel prepared. Where, yeah. where I think some people probably would be prepared to understand what direction is north or, or uh, how to survive the, this loss of control of, mm. the, I also think forests actually look huge and intimidating they don't yeah. seem yeah. like friendly to people. Like they're a little bit like, are you sure you're prepared? Because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> we go for miles. We go over mountains. This it's all the way back there. This is all we so, do. It's this forever. So, yeah. <laughs> we don't have like a little boardwalk at the end of it. It goes into streams. And <laughs> this is actually, this right here, this is the best part. But once you yeah. get in, it gets way worse. So, <laughs> so if this, this is, is already... The part. <laughs> and it, we don't have lights. There's no lights back there. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh my gosh, that's so funny. I, yeah, I don't know that I have like. Um, uh, I, I definitely I agree with uh, with heights. I have that same fear. Uh, forests in general, I would say forest at night. Yes, when once it becomes more vast, uh, and once I can't really see how vast it is, similar to like getting lost and and like just staring into the stars. Totally. Uh, just like you know the, I have like an existential crisis, and I just become immediately aware of how tiny I am and how this thing is prepared to eat me. It's kind of yes. like how I feel sometimes. Um, to go a little bit back, uh, Danielle, it's amazing that you mentioned that article. Dacker sent me a different article, but there's overlap here that I'm really excited to bring up. He sent me an article today about horror restaurants mm. that, that are popping. I was in the New York Times and this particular restaurant happened to be vegan. And there was a quote I pulled from the article because I loved it. It was, there's this sense that horror fans lack empathy because how else could they enjoy horror? He says, but a lot of horror fans are so empathetic that they don't want to eat animals, which... I mean, that that's up for debate that a lot of horror fans are vegan, but I still love the idea that horror fans are more uh, empathic than uh, people that don't get it or don't watch. And I was wondering, you know, are there studies that can show it now that we know there's a study that shows that they're they're more prepared? Are there sh studies that, that zero in on their empathy levels and, and show how empathic a horror fan is or fans of, of anything for that matter? There's a there's a little bit of work on fiction, you know, reading fiction and some of it is horrifying is promotes empathy. Um, there's a really interesting study that should make Fred happy, which is uh, when they release blockbusters that are horrifying, violence actually drops mm. throughout the United States because <laughs> everybody's in the theater leaning into each other, hugging each other sort of forming these bonds. Um, but the I think the broader thesis is is yet to be tested. And we should ask Fred about his thinking about this, like how in the world could seeing horror make you more empathetic to your fellow human beings? Well, I I would sooner just point to like when you think of horror fans, no offense, I mean, I'll, I'll put myself as one of them. When you yeah. think of goths and yeah. horror fans, when you just think they're the most gentle people. Nice. I, I don't mean to make it such yeah. a big generalization, <laughs> but when you just think of just how they are, how they speak, they're just gentle. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I, I think somewhere in, I don't know if that's the answer, but somewhere in there, I think that goes for, I think even, I actually think the same of like people who are really into heavy metal, like metalheads who are into really dark metal. I actually, the, the, the ones who I've met and bands who I've met are, it's a real quiet sort of, uh, sen they're sensitive. Yeah. I see them as very sensitive. Mm -hmm. I have never encountered a metal band who was just like trying to be tough backstage and like, what are you doing here? <laughs> That's it. It's always like, <laughs> so, I, I think they're soft spoken and sensitive. And, I mean, I, I, it's a, it's like, I, again, I'm, I, it's a generalization, but that's, that's how I, I see them and horror things. That's why well. it's called. Emo. You know, I have to wait. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's why it's called. <laughs> There's this great scientific study of um, uh, where these guys took mosh pits. They looked at metalhead concerts, and there are two forms of humanity at metalhead concerts. There's the mosh pit where everybody's engaging in this chaos, but then around the mosh pit <laughs> is a wall of humans that are kind of all moving together, 
protecting the people in the mosh pit. It's amazing. It's yeah. like, you think it's chaos and it's yet it's civility. So I remember I was at a show in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, I think it was seven dust was the band. And uh, <laughs> at that same show, there was a large intimidating uh, biker presence. Right. And so you, you already you walk in with this bias of like, Oh, these tall brooding bald dudes with leather vests that are, are not my friends. I don't know. I want them to be, I want to be on their side, whatever the argument is. I don't want to be against them. And so you go in there and you're very intimidated. And I remember the pit and we're all going through. And, uh, my friend, uh, Kent, who at the time was like 90 pounds soaking wet, like super rail thin kid. And he had like a, I forget what you do, but he's in the pit and he's kind of getting lost and he goes down and this dude just swoops in and one arm picks him right up, like dusts <laughs> him off. Says, you good? All all right, buddy, gets him back in there. And like, it, it, there was, it, we, we, it was a big life lesson of like, all right, the whole book by the cover thing was like, these guys, though they may have been into, they were all there to have the same party we were there to have. And they, everybody had each other's back. If someone went down, the whole group got them back up and it was a team effort to make sure they were okay. You got water, you're good, you're hydrated. All right, back in the pit, let's go. And it was just nice. like such a lesson. And also it was a great show. Um, but yeah, just to, to, to speak I'm to that. I'm totally having my mind blown right now because I feel like what what I thought used to be a Venn diagram of goth, metal, veganism, horror. I'm like, this Venn diagram is a circle. That's beautiful. And I think what's fascinating <laughs> is like, part of me, the aha that was going off as everyone was just talking is like, it takes a lot of um, sensitivity and courage to be someone who makes friends with the shadows, the things that go bump in the night, the things that live inside of ourselves and the ability to create community around that the call into that. I'm like, Oh, I'm, I missed one of my yeah. social callings. This is like, I'm really, I'm like struck by this. <laughs> truly. It's beautiful. I was afraid you were about to say you were surprised that I was a seven dust fan. So that was a relief <laughs> to hear the, that observation, which was much nicer. Um, but, but you're right. I, I also like, it you. seems like horror fans that they're sort of, the vulnerability is that they're also acknowledging their own fear or like being friends with what they're yes. scared of. Mm. It's a really vul vulnerable thing to admit, you know, even to, you know, yeah. to step into the room with monsters. Yeah. 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 And to like shine the well, light in like such my... a way that they're not actually monsters, which is part of what you were saying earlier, that, that joy that if the light shined and we're all together, it's like, it's all okay. It's all, it will all be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, and it's made all the more interesting that when you go like way back and you look at some of the earliest. So I started um, watching, uh, rewatching rather the, the like the Universal Classics because they're all on uh, HBO Max. I don't know why I said that they're not paying us, uh, but they're they're. Yeah. No, we should. We should. But let's uh, uh, hey everyone out there, make sure to check out HBO Max. I don't know why I said. Well, that's where they are. You know what? If you're listening and you want to watch the Universal Classics, they're they're up there. So that's where they are. Go. Find Find them. I saved you the Google search. So anyway, we were we were watching specifically. Uh, we were right at the very beginning. Uh, the the Bell Lugosi 1931 uh, Dracula, and the introduction of Dracula in that film. Just the way he comes out of the coffin and like it's incredibly deliberate in its pace, and like every bone in his finger wraps around the top of that coffin before he moves, and it's so slow but unsettling. And I was just thinking about the contrast between that. 
uh, and, and sort of the jump scares and intense edits of more modern horror and just how unsettling and slow and atmospheric and creepy that was. And, and I'm curious uh, about that shift, about that move. And, and it's, it, you know, just talking about what we were, it's fascinating to think of somebody seeing that guy and going, I got to be friends with that guy. And then also it's fascinating to think about how that's evolved and how the, the five minute one shot of a man slowly getting out of a box isn't as scary as it was in 1931. What do we know about that movement, about that needle shifting in that direction? Why that's happened? Anyone? Because I obviously have no idea. We need your help, Fred. <laughs> yeah, Fred, what do you think about the way? Because as a little Dracula early and what does it mean now? Why I do mean, you it's... think it's progressed the way it has? And, and, and why do you think it's evolved the way it has over time? Sam, I'm trying to think about it for a second because I don't know that it doesn't work anymore. Like this, I, I, but if done poorly, it doesn't work. But like, I, okay. I don't have an exact example, but uh, I think there are some slow shots of people coming out of coffins that might still be working. I mean, I, I'm sure some zombie movies are a little more sped up and there's like a, a, mm-hmm. a, a lot more speed happening. But I think I have a feeling that there's still some scariness to the original movie. Um, I go to this other place where I start thinking like, how did they know it was scary? Mm. It was such mm. early days of horror that, <laughs> wow. Uh, they, I don't, I don't, I don't know how they took the temperature of how, what audiences were like, but that's amazing that they were, they figured out that, that moodiness. I love yeah. that. Cause you're right. Watching it now in 2021 and, and forgetting a large part of what the world was like in 1931, they yeah. couldn't test it. They had no other <laughs> basis. There was no one telling them this is how you got to shoot it this way. Yeah. So that, that is awesome. Let's, let's open that up a little bit. What do you guys think? Decker, Alan, Danielle, why do you think they knew in 1931 that Bella Lugosi taking five minutes to get out of the box was scary? <laughs> I think the slow buildup still happens sometimes. The, the scene from Get Out, um, where you know the guy's running toward him, and it's just a slow like coming closer and closer and closer. I think that yeah. really freaks you out somehow. <laughs> no, cool. yeah, I'm not sure why. I, I think the the move toward jump scares may actually have to something to do with people's being so um, desensitized to horror movies at this point mm. that they kind of they start to start to go toward the cheap thrills a little bit more. Um, but I don't think that's true of the more intellectual horror movies or for example, like Los Spookies, which I enjoyed watching. I think that's mm-hmm. no jump scares in there. Uh, totally different take on horror. It is still horror but with the comedic elements. Um, and that's much deeper to me. <laughs> Thank you for the compliment. <laughs> why does horror and Daniel, this is something you and I were talking about uh, a couple of days ago is why does horror pair so well with comedy, with a love story with you can tell so many stories against the backdrop of a horror story as well. What, what, why do we think they pair as well as they do and work so well together? Are you asking me? Fred, why do you think that? <laughs> I was asking that. I mean, I, I like to pose open questions. And the, and the beauty is this this isn't even live. So if you take 10 minutes to think about it, I'll just cut out the silence. It's not that big a deal. But uh, anyway. No, no. You should leave the silence in as if something some, like from a horror right. movie happened. Love it. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> I mean, I also. Alan ate daiquiri. Oh, I, know. <laughs> I think. Well, how do you, Fred, like, how do you think about that in your, your own yeah. artistic career, right? You have. Years on Saturday Night Live, comedy, absurdity, satire, Los Spookies, horror. It's just a different 
different process or what do you think? I, it, it's more that like, it was a, like a satisfied feeling. So mm. there's a sketch that we used to do on Portlandia where we played goths. Yeah. We played these goths who <laughs> had a hard time going, going to the beach. They didn't know what to wear at the beach. But the fun part of it is that, so the pose the goths would do would be like this, like, <laughs> and doing that, I, I, I don't know why it worked, but it really made us so happy. There's really no joke to it. There's no, there's no punchline to it. But in that moment for us, horror and comedy just worked out. And then yeah. we do meet up with someone who uh, was from a, a band called the Misfits. So even the music part was, came, you know, worked out. Um, and then as far as music goes, you know, there's some terrifying album covers that <laughs> we all love and that are really sort of scary. So that's worked out. It works with music very, very well. Yeah. Um, it does feel like there's this, yeah. like, there, you know, what I'm hearing today too is like, there's this primal piece that's like deep in our wiring. And then there's this like social construct piece that kind of changes based on what's going on. And I feel like I noticed the, the kind of comedy thriller thing, especially when like scary movie came out and all these things that were like, Hey, guess what? Here's the blueprint for this. And, but we're, you're still going to be scared. You're still going to freak. You're still going to scream. And I love that kind of play. But I think what's interesting too, is I was, is I was like thinking about the films I was the most scared by or the most like, and, and scared in kind of deeper ways too, is like, what's interesting is the way that like horror is almost this like, uh, this cultural commentary or literacy. It's like, you think Al mentioned get out. That's like a cultural commentary on systems of oppression. And then I remember when saw came out and was just like that, that haunt that was with me for days. I was like, but you know, what was weird is that was supposed to be this like allegorical tale to teach you to appreciate life. And so I think what's so strange is like the pairing of like comedy or whatever with this space to kind of, get us somewhere. Like, I'm, I'm curious if that's intentional yeah. or if that's yeah. just kind of done because people are being creative in the stream of consciousness. But Fred, what do you notice with that? Just as someone tuned in. I, I think it's like, some, that's something that uh, it's both. It's I think both reasons. So I think sometimes a little bit of comedy in a horror movie, it just actually lightens things mm. up a little bit. So it's like a roller coaster. So you can, just have a moment so that it's not pure horror all the time. You just need something to kind of, I, I guess, relax you a little bit, you know, so that the scare is more effective. <laughs> but then there probably is like an element to like writers trying to show that time is moving on. There might be an element of like, hey, this is, you know, whatever year, 2021 or wh- whatever year it's going to be, um, where they are trying to... S- uh, redefine what a horror movie mm. is. So there'll probably yeah. be, be some other new uh, comedy move with dialogue or something that, you know, something like Scary Movie or or Get Out it also had like elements of comedy mm-hmm. to it. Yeah. So yeah. I think that'll just, it's, it's like, um, yeah, it's just like a, a new way to throw people off mm-hmm. balance. And I, I know we don't want to get, or I'm assuming we don't want to get too topical or maybe we do but i do feel like squid game is like a new horror (laughs) genre even though you could call it something else i do feel like that's a a new kind of fear yeah a hundred percent yeah you know but i don't 
now that now that I've just said it, I'm like, oh God, am I now I'm on a podcast talking about how Squid Game is like. <laughs> well, that's a whole quote. Like it's too much. Uh, Fred Armisen like, proclaims Squid yeah. Game is the new horror. Yeah, you know, it's like me saying the same thing about Game of Thrones three years ago. <laughs> but but, I, but it just struck me just that. But that movie was just so. Oh, I'm sorry. That series, yeah, definitely had horror yeah. elements. Hundred well, ways of scaring us. I mean, to be fair, yeah. I was going to walk you up to that at some point because I was going to ask what you've been watching recently and what's had what's been the most effective uh, uh, in in that genre or in even the subgenres of, of which there are many. And, and so, so Squid Game is one thing that's been very effective for you lately. Um, you know, have you found yourself? Uh, do you constantly revisit older stuff? Are you always mixing old and new and seeing the the the, the black and white and going back and forth and watching that needle bounce back and forth? And yeah, and so sometimes I think I wonder if we all do this. Like you kind of like tiptoe away from anything that's too popular because you're just. I, I'm just gonna assume we all want to be cool. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, I really found that Midsummer. You know, Midsummer that. Um, Midsommar that came out, I guess, two years ago about the Swedish heart, you know, Swedish. Yeah. like I love that one so much. Yeah. And that to yeah. me felt like a step ahead in heart. Mm-hmm. Whenever mm. they find some new nationality where it comes mm. from, or that's so much of that is in the daytime. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I like when, when that, so that's something that really had a, a huge effect on me. I think yeah. going back to 2008, I'm st- one of my favorite horror movies was something called The Strangers. Ooh, yeah. It's a trio who break into this house, and it's that's still truly scary to me. But um, what about you guys? I'm curious about this this question of like usually with um or actually usually I don't know what I'm talking about. I feel like there's this um you sort of like create boundaries around things like, Oh, horror is this genre. It involves like these emotions, fear and disgust or whatever. And what I find interesting as I'm thinking about this and listening is it's almost like anything can be horror if it messes with you and what is comfortable. And so like I heard KK Barrett talk about, um, her, it's a love story and it's a horror story. And it's like what you're talking about, like the daytime, it's like, this is not reserved for the nighttime that it's like, everything is open to horror. So I'm just so curious about how that works because even thinking about like White Lotus, there's an element of horror to that. Or um, I can't remember the microdosing one with Nicole Kinman, but that and, you know, it's like there are so many things that can disturb us. Is is that does that qualify for horror or is there something distinct? Uh Let's say yes. Let's vote yes. yes. I vote yes. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Well, for me, yeah, I mean, 100%. You talk about like, uh, and also, I did the same thing with the Midsummer. Mids- I say I, the title might have well been the name like three times because I have yeah. to say it three or four before I know that that's what I'm talking It's Midsummer, Midsummer. I, I can never get it right in the first swing. But uh, you, you talk about how much of it was during the daytime. And I, and that's when I feel like I'm seeing, so, when it takes a, it, it seems like such a simple trope to turn on its head. Oh, everything else has been in the nighttime. Let's do it in the daytime. Well, first of all, that's way easier said than done and they do it very well in that film but like that's what it is for me danielle you hit the nail on the head whenever you take something and and it it messes with me a little bit and and for me it's like i've gotten comfortable with certain tropes and when i see someone subvert those tropes or just twist them just the slightest bit it's super impactful and super effective for me and so i get very excited by those things for sure so yes i I want to write those people a a thank you letter those directors (laughs) whenever i see something a move like that i'm like thank you 
That's all I'm asking. Just, yes. You know. I think we should do that. Before we get out of here, we'll we'll, we'll draft one up together. Yeah. And then we'll, <laughs> we'll find a way to get it to them. I think they, they deserve to know. Um, I don't well, want I also, to... Oh, go for I, it. Yeah, please. I, I love that, that all those movies and books sort of an existential high level discomfort as opposed to just, you know, there's like the cringe and pathic pain. Like you see somebody like getting their eye poked out, which is which is fun in, in moderation. But the existential <laughs> themes in Midsummer of like these truly horrifying relationships in some ways yeah. that you find out uh, the true nature of over time and get out. It really it's about yeah. slavery and about his, dark history of things we don't want to talk about. So uh, when, when we can play with those ideas, I think it, it becomes a deep. Fred, Schmigadoon, yeah. horror or musical? Oh, <laughs> because... <laughs> Keegan's character is horrified that he's about to be in a musical and he does he wants no part of it. So let's let's put that in the horror genre. <laughs> Done. <laughs> For a moment. It's a momentary horror genre. Like as, as the episodes go, it lightens. Fleeting horror. That's yeah, going to make it right. really hard to find when you want to watch it if we keep moving it back and forth, but I do agree it is only momentary. Yeah. Uh, and then it yeah, and then it shifts. Yeah. Mm. Um, I don't want to uh, pivot us too far away from this, but we are coming into the home stretch, and a mainstay of this podcast has somehow become me asking Alan uh, <laughs> for examples of parallels of the emotion we've discussed in the animal kingdom. Uh, we've had some incredible revelations thus far uh, involving capuchin monkeys and some other fantastic stories, uh, but I worry that this one has the potential to get really sad really fast. Uh, I, I defer to your expertise, Alan. What what can you tell us about uh, horror as it's experienced in the animal kingdom and as it's been observed uh, by scientists and, and humans? So this is not another tough one. I think we've discussed like startles, uh, jump scares. Obviously, animals have those. Animals have empathic pain, kind of cringe responses. Animals have disgust, like they want to stay away from rotting things. That's very clear that animals have all of those things. Um, two aspects. One do animals enjoy horror <laughs> like we do? And I, I, I think that where our enjoyment of horror may come from is the fact that play has evolved to be high level and evolved to be uh, stories, basically. And animals don't really have stories or narrative to play with. And so I, I don't think that animals probably enjoy horror. Um, do animals have like the high level existential dread that is unique to horror or non-empathic pain or fear or disgust. And I think that um, that sort of requires an awareness of your own mortality, of mm -hmm. yourself as a body that is uh, temporary. Yeah. And maybe whales have some of that. You see them carrying, you know, there was that famous orca that carried around its dead infant for 17 days. Um, well, yeah, elephants that's it. mourn their dead. I was going to say, I yeah. think of elephants mourning their dead. I've seen um, uh, primates in general, like yeah. uh, you know, mourning yeah. their dead and, and things of that nature. So I assume there, there's something there that maybe we mm -hmm. aren't able to tap into it and, and say definitively, that's the thing. But yeah. but as people that experience those emotions, like you know that they go part and parcel together. There's got to be some element of that in Do there. Yeah. yeah, there's also sadness in there. So yeah. I don't know where we are in our umbrella map where veganism is the handle of said umbrella, <laughs> but um, I'm curious if you need that level of remove for horror to operate the way that it does. Because like in yeah. the animal kingdom, yeah. if somebody gets eaten by a tiger, like they really got eaten by the tiger. Like it's not, it's right. not you watching. <laughs> so 
Yeah. I, scientifically, yeah, I'm curious if that is, is a piece of it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you do. And that's, you know, in that's a complicated cognitive shift, right? To go from this is reality to I'm one step removed and I'm thinking about the the loss of exi- of an individual's existence. And I don't, I, I'm with Alan. I'm not sure that's out there in the non-human world. Jane Goodall observed, it's kind of this startling observation. She has a new book out on hope, by the way, but um, uh chimpanzees would go out in these kind of squads and kill other other tribal members of chimpan other chimpanzees and really bludgeon them and and that would be where we would ask do they have a sense of the horror of their act and i don't i don't think so right? mm. but it's an interesting question yeah yeah no thank you for asking that because i was that's something i wrote down too is like when you when i'm talking about my earlier delineation is like i wonder how much of like removing that safety is part yeah. of it, right? Like, uh, like you said, in the animal world, they they have no concept. I mean, I was optimistic. We had the capuchin monkeys purchasing. I'm for, okay, real quick for the regular listeners. I promise this <laughs> is the last up, time Matt. I bring, bring up the capuchin up. monkey experiment. <laughs> <laughs> but Fred, uh, to catch you up briefly, <laughs> I've taken to summarizing this each time. Um, so Alan explained to us an experiment in which capuchin monkeys were given a form of currency. It was imbued with a value. And then those monkeys were observed to exchange the currency for uh, monkey pornography food and then last week it was revealed uh photos of the alpha male for the record uh, hopefully now you understand a little more of why i can't stop bringing this up but i was optimistic that perhaps we'd end up back at that capuchin monkey story where they've exchanged money if they're buying pictures of the alpha male perhaps they're buying something that resembles a form of horror for them but no that's not the case they haven't done that or have they wait so did, did they in fact exchange money for any of those things Yeah, so you give capuchins currency that they can trade for fruit, and then all of a sudden you realize that they're using it for prostitution, basically. Wow. (laughs) Like paying for sex, and then the monkey that's paid for sex immediately goes and exchanges that that coin for fruit. (laughs) Wow. There's knowledge of what's happening. Um, Yeah. Uh, They haven't done do capuchins pay for horror. Um, I think that'd be tough from an ethics standpoint to justify it, but it's definitely an interesting question. Um, Yeah. I don't know. I I think, I I think Dacker's example of uh, chimps mutilating each other is really interesting in some ways because it's, it goes beyond, they just kill each other. They're actually setting some sort of example that's meant to horrify the other chimps and the other. Yeah, so for sure that that could be evidence there. Well, it's like I said, this got real, real fast. I was hoping for more monkey porn say, stories, but you know, you ask about the animal to, kingdom. Like, Ned Stark's head on the spike. Like, oh my, somebody save us from the creative yeah. world, please. <laughs> but I, I think they've interviewed some of those chimps and a lot of those rivalries go back centuries. This is a family... <laughs> family fights that go way way back so Hatfield they, and McCoy Hatfield. They, yeah, they, were seeing, they were telling us that they, that we wouldn't understand 
Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. We shouldn't impose our own culture on yeah. these chicks. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Yes. Well, that's a, that's a fair <laughs> and totally valid statement. All right. Um, unfortunately, I'm sorry to say it, but that's all the time we have for today. Uh, I got to blow out the old candle in this here jack-o'-lantern, <laughs> but I want to thank my co-hosts, Danielle, Dacker, and Alan for another great chat. And on behalf of all of us here, I'd like to extend a ridiculous amount of gratitude towards our guest, Mr. Fred Armisen, for taking time out of his busy schedule to join us here today thank you so much fred thanks for uh, having me this was so much fun i love talking to all of you so thank you that means so much thank you uh before we get out of here i know uh there's always new episodes of big mouth coming we talked about uh Doom. we've talked about okay you i've read you were recently uh announced as cranky kong in the upcoming super mario movie what <laughs> you've got so much going on what should people keep an eye on anything else you want to plug but before we uh call it on this one here anything else going on for you just and i just want to plug sushi as much as i can as a okay good yeah you know I like as, that. A, as a type of food it's just great Got it. Sushi. <laughs> so if I'm keeping track, it's uh, HBO Max, uh, Sushi, and uh, Dak, you mentioned Jane Goodall's new book. That's what we're plugging today. Those are the things. Yeah. Uh, oh, this is a selfish question. Any updates on Los Spooky Season 2? Can you tell us anything? Yes, we're shooting. Um, we're slated to shoot. We, we had to stop shooting because of the pandemic, and we shoot in uh, Santiago, Chile. And wow. uh, we're starting back up in uh, January of oh, shooting. Finishing the season in uh, January of 2022. Oh, that's awesome. so exciting. I'm so that, happy to hear that. That's where it stands now. Who knows? Yeah, of where, course. Uh, the pandemic will t- take us, but so far that's the schedule. Um, I Well, I'm going to hold you to those dates. Uh, that's it. It's set in stone. Uh, Fred Armisen, everybody, thank you so much. Uh, last but certainly not least, thank you to you, our listeners. If you enjoyed this episode and it's your first, we've got uh, some amazing stuff up there about desire and awe that I highly recommend you check those out. Uh, if this is not your first time with us, welcome back. Uh, do us a favor. Tell a friend. Write a nice review if you got a little bit of time. Imagine it's October 31st and we're all at your doorstep, pillowcases in hand. Throw a five-star rating in there, why don't you? Be the full candy bar house do it all right uh if you have any questions you'd like answered even if it's just like i don't know like about the weather it doesn't cost any money email us at the feelings lab at hume.ai i'll put that right down here so you can see that the feel actually you know what in honor of halloween i'm going to change that instead of the feelings lab at hume.ai it's the feeling slab at hume.ai that's t-h-e-f-e-e-l-i-n-g S-L-A-B at Hume.ai. Go ahead and email us over there at the slab. Uh, farewell for now from all of us here at the Feeling Slab. I'm Matt Forte. Thanks again. Have a safe and spooky Halloween, everyone. We'll see you next time. <laughs>